0: 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. The previous program was Extinction Rebellion Radio, which is heard right after the WBAI evening news on Tuesdays at 6.30 p.m. Stay tuned for WBAI election special 2021 and this will be hosted and produced by The Independent, which their program is usually on Tuesdays at 5 p.m. In other words, stay tuned for this special that's about to air.
1: by Ben Webster. Good evening and welcome to the Independence 2021 Election Night Special. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor of The Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website since 2000. Voters across the country are heading to the polls today on the first election day since Donald Trump's defeat last November. Governorships are up for grabs in New Jersey and Virginia. Boston, Buffalo, Atlanta, Seattle, and Minneapolis are among the big cities choosing their next mayors. The future of policing has been a flash. Flashpoint in each of these races in Minneapolis, where George Floyd was murdered, voters will also vote on whether to abolish their current police department and replace it with a new Department of Public Safety. Here in New York, voters are choosing a new mayor, city council, and more. Over the next two hours, we'll discuss what New York City might look like under Eric Adams, the heavy favorite to win today's mayoral election over Republican Curtis Lewa. We'll keep track of key races here in New York and beyond. And we'll look at deeper trends driving local and national politics at this time. Our special guests tonight include WBAI's Tom Robbins and Ben Max, Alex Vitale, author of The End of Policing, Linda Martine Alcoff, author of The Future of Whiteness, and a newly elected Socialist City Councilwoman from Sunset Park, Brooklyn. First, we have some clips of New York City voters speaking earlier today with the independents' Amma G- about who they voted for and why.
2: The mayor choice I had was Curtis. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell you why I voted for him. I came to this country in 1989 and he's always been around as, uh, as, a, as an activist, always trying to do good with, uh, with the neighborhood, with the communities. So seeing him on the ballot is uh, pretty exciting for me. Um, so I figured why not give him a shot um at the mayoral run and uh and yeah i really hope that uh that he's better
3: than our current
2: mayor because um i'm not a big fan of the guy um but i want him to to focus on the everyday life of the citizen of new york meaning public transportation schools um and not focus so much on his career Uh, eric adams
4: okay
5: and i will vote for him because i just believe in his policies uh i'm lifelong democrat and um i have been satisfied with what the democratic party has done for me particularly during the covid uh in this district so
4: Mm -hmm. that's why
5: it's important to me Um, safer schools Uh, i have two children so i would like safer schools
4: I voted for um, Eric Adams, and I voted for him uh, basically because uh, he's largely endorsed by the my, my union, and also the the opponent seems a little off to me, and so I didn't feel secure voting for him. Um, that's it in a nutshell, and. Um, um, I think what I would like to see is is a mayor that really knows and understands the city, and not just from um, civil workers, um, you know, from all the way up to all the way down, even to the immigrants, like to to recognize who actually lives here.
6: Who did you vote for and why? I voted for Eric Adams. Mainly because I see him speaking a lot on the news, talking about the changes as far as being a part of this city and seeing the things that has happened to us as a people, even as not just black people, but everyone in general, um, things that matter um, as far as gun laws and you know housing, affordable housing. Um, down to schools, you know, what needs to happen as far as like what Mayor de Blasio is also trying to do as far as the G&T program. I've seen what it can do as far as like uh, separating groups, smart and so-called dumb. Some people believe that because they do say that, unfortunately, um, but we see who gets into those programs.
1: Okay, that was voters speaking earlier today outside of Brooklyn polling station with the independence Ama Gagarian, joining us now to talk about today's elections and what may come next is Tom Robbins. Tom was a legendary investigative journalist at the Village Voice for many years, best known for his award-winning coverage of political corruption and urban issues here in New York. He currently hosts Deadline NYC Mondays, 6 to 7 p.m. here on WBAI. Tom, welcome to the WBAI's
7: election night special. Thank you, John. I'm glad to be here. I think I'm on 5 to 6 on Mondays.
0: but he is on my apologies. 5 p.m. Right. Mondays. That's what it that- is.
7: Thank you, Rich. Okay.
1: (laughs) Yes, five to six p.m. Of course, we're on uh, Tuesdays, five to six p.m. There Um, you go. Yeah. So, um, uh, for starters, uh, you followed Eric Adams' uh, public career for many years, uh, going back to the early '90s at least. Uh, What are your uh, most distinct memories of him from over the years, and what should uh, New Yorkers uh, know about him um, Hmm. as you know as he prepares to take on the largest role of his career?
7: Hmm. Good questions, John. You know, let, let me start with the what's happening right now, which is that we, we we are, I think, as a city, on the verge of something fairly historic. In that it, it's only the second time that a, a person of color, an African American man, has has been elected mayor. I mean, I'm assuming that that's going to be the outcome tonight. I don't think it's much in doubt. We can talk about what the possible gap might look like between Eric Adams and Curtis Sliwa. But, you know, it really is just an extraordinary thing that David Dinkins had one term, 89 to 93, replaced by two terms of Rudy Giuliani, three terms of Michael Bloomberg, two terms of Bill de It It's taken us that long to get back to electing somebody who just represents really the majority of the city. And and so that's, you know, it's not very exciting because, like we said, it's a pretty much a foregone conclusion that he will be elected this evening. But it's it's nonetheless still historic. And, you know, I think that's something no matter how you may feel about Eric Adams. and, And I've got a lot of questions about him myself, but I I think that New Yorkers should be glad that they are about to put somebody in City Hall who at least knows what it's like to be a black person from a place of poverty in New York City's boroughs. Right. And um, what have been what has
1: been some of your impressions of Eric Adams over the years? Uh, he first came in the public eye as a activist, uh, activist police officer inside the mm. NYPD and then later uh, went on to an electoral career.
7: You know, at the time that Eric Adams stepped forward as a dissident police officer, you got to remember what a rare bird that was. I mean, we just hadn't seen it. One thing, there weren't that many uh, black and Latino cops at that point uh, in the NYPD. And while there was always a uh, organization that represented the small number of African-American police officers that there were, they had never really stepped forward to disagree with the policies of the city or the policies of the commissioner. And so my initial reaction to Eric Adams was, wow, look at this guy. He's impressive. You know, he's he's standing up. He's right there. He's wearing a uniform. He's speaking what appear to be, you know, righteous uh, disagreements with the policies of the NYPD. And it's very different for us to see Somebody who's wearing the blue uniform saying the things that he was saying. So my my initial my initial reaction was pretty good. I liked the guy. I liked what I heard. Uh, I think that changed somewhat as he as he got into politics. I mean, let's just remember his his venture into politics was was a very strange one. He ran for Congress once and lost. He he ran against Major Owens. Who I don't I, it always seemed to me, and I think to a lot of people, he was a long-running black, uh, independent progressive congressman. You know, like of all the seats that you're going to run for to try to get an incumbent out of office, Major Owens—that's the one you're going to try to do. And then he dabbled with the Republican Party. You know, he went and he actually, I think, registered as a Republican. He said that he thought Rudy Giuliani was was being really good for the city. Uh, At a time, no less, when Giuliani's antipathy to at least black people who came in conflict with the police was something that the entire city was recognizing. So that was really a strange turn, I thought, for him. Uh, He did win election. He went to the state Senate. Uh, But in the Senate, again, his, his role seemed to be really more about Eric Adams and his career than it seemed to be about. Like the, the people who have been elected to the state senate over the last couple of years, who were just like putting forward all these progressive policies and really making themselves heard, we, we didn't get that. We we really heard from Eric Adams and and his closest friends, John Sampson and Ira Montserrat, were were kind of like, "Where's mine?" Uh, so you know, I he did not impress as an elected official in the state senate. Um, and then you move forward, you know, he becomes the borough president of Brooklyn. And, like, that's not exactly a job that comes with a lot of heavy lifting, to say the least. <laughs> it's really, you know, you're the ombudsman for the borough. Once upon a time, Johnny, of course, it did have real power. Yeah, had a lot of
1: power in the days of the Board of Estimate. but that, Exactly. Right. That's been greatly diminished.
7: Right. But, the, but then they made him a citywide player. You know, you were in the position to be able to frustrate the mayor if you didn't like what the mayor was doing, particularly if it was in your borough. You basically got to say, "Uh-uh, you can't do that." Uh, but since the Charter changes of of eighty nine, you know, it's really diminished in power, and it and it has been simply, you know, kind of like a just a a plenty potentiary for government, you know. And he used it clearly to build his political capital to run for higher office. I mean, that was one of the things that that I think as I watched him in Borough Hall. Uh, that sort of, you know, at least created questions about where he was going as he worked to cultivate relationships with all the uh, new ethnic communities of South Brooklyn that had made a lot of money, you know, the uh, the areas of Brighton Beach and Sheepshead Bay and uh, where there were a lot of new ethnic Russian, Azerbaijani, uh, different communities, and, and he went, he sought them out. And as soon as he began running, for mayor, which, remember, it began by in 2018. I mean, he's been doing this for a solid more than three years, almost four years, and he went straight to those communities and started raising big bucks from them. So, you know, his essentially, you know, we're talking about a guy who really does not have, in terms of as his role as in elective office, a whole lot to point to as to what he's achieved, and he's kind of a blank slate, I think. Um, one of the things that I find myself thinking is I see him getting so much applause and so many endorsements and so many people saying this guy's going to be great is that I think that people are seeing in Eric Adams what they want to see. You know, he's almost like a human Rorschach test. You know, uh, he is an affable man. He's a friendly man. He's outspoken. He doesn't seem to like to disagree with people unless your name is Curtis Uh, and And yet you sort of wonder, well, where where is he going to draw the line, you know? And and we sort of saw a big piece of that over the last couple of weeks with this mandate fight, which is a pretty fierce fight that's being waged between the mayor and particularly the uniformed services of the city. And, and if you've heard a clear word out of Eric Adams, I'd like to hear it because he really has dodged that question. Would you uphold the mandate for the police and the firefighters, the EMTs and others? He hasn't answered that question. So, I mean, that's a long list of the questions that I have about the guy as he yeah. prepares, I think, to take office.
1: And who are some of the key people he's surrounded himself with and what
7: should we draw from that? Well, I don't think we know yet. You know, okay. I mean, certainly we look, we can go through his, his enormous campaign contributions that he's drawn. You know, one of the things that What is extraordinary about his campaign was it wasn't just the fact that he raised about $15 million himself, but he got almost $10 million from the fattest of the fat cats who put together independent uh, political action committees to buy television ads and radio ads and and online uh, banners that they could spread all across the Internet. So, you know, okay, what, what does a man like Paul Tudor Jones, who is known as a vulture capitalist, one of the guys who's been one of the biggest promoters of charter schools and other things, what exactly does he see in his crystal ball as to what an Eric Adams mayoralty is going to be like? We can only wonder. I'll say this. Okay. The one thing that we do know, and this is another, you know, somewhat historic moment, I think, is that if elected tonight, This will be really only the second time in the last 35, 40 years that the Brooklyn Democratic Organization, I won't say machine because it's, it's just not strong enough to be called a machine anymore, but it is a collection of people who understand which side their bread is buttered on, and they work hard to get people in jobs like judgeships, things that can help them. And not since Abe Beam, who came directly out of the Brooklyn Democratic Organization, have we had a candidate who was boosted so strongly for so long as their candidate. So we can say, yeah, the you know, the Kings County Democratic Committee, boy, they're, they're his biggest backer, backers right now.
1: Mm. And and speaking of, of backers and, and fat cats, uh, we, we have a, a clip here we're going to play in a minute where uh, Eric Adams uh, talks about uh, – how important it is in his mind for new york his city to become more uh business friendly that uh, uh new york has not been uh hospitable enough to uh, to business in recent years um, i think we're, that's gonna run here in a sec
8: government must do its job to create an environment for growth that includes lower crime we have to curb covid fewer homeless as you see on our streets Greater affordability and partnership with the business community. This is going to be a place where we welcome business and not turn into the dysfunctional city that we have been for so many years. That,
1: that was Eric Adams uh, speaking at a conference organized by Anthony Scaramucci, a hedge hedge fund executive and former Trump white house communications director, uh, who also, uh, endorsed Adams uh the cycle uh, your your thoughts on uh, what he's saying there i mean seems that's uh, oh, look i mean
7: some of it you know we'll we'll see how it plays out once he's actually got some power to deal out but uh he obviously was currying favor with uh business community trying to make sure that he got their blessings he wanted to make make clear that he was not adopting the kind of at least rhetoric that uh Bill de Blasio did when he uh, really try to draw a line between the rich and the poor in New York, uh, but you know how how is that gonna gonna play out? I mean, we we don't really know. I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's so many things about Eric Adams in, in terms of you know who he is that we don't really understand, and one of them is the very thing you're you're asking about. He went on vacation this summer after he won the primary. Now, there's, you know, a lot of places that you might want to go to for vacation. You know, I can think of places I'd love to go, maybe an island in the Caribbean, maybe the West Coast, maybe the Northwest. Eric Adams went to the Monaco, (laughs) a tiny little almost duchy of Monaco, where it's nothing but known as a center for gambling and hedonism. (laughs) It's just like, who goes to Monaco? Known for
1: its uh, roulette tables.
7: Yes, exactly. Now he says he didn't gamble. He says he went to the casino, but he didn't gamble. Well, it's like but,
1: going to the saloon and not getting a drink.
7: So it's just, you know, so how does that play into what he says about business? He certainly has made it his business to try to curry favor with those folks. How will that play out? I mean, look, New York's uh, uh business, Right now is, is kind of in a, at a crisis moment because of the fact that so many of the huge office buildings that were built with city subsidies like Hudson Yards are now still have such high vacancy levels and so many others. And that's going to be something that both the business community and the social service and progressive community are going to be looking for. Well, what are you going to do about that? What do you? How are you going to reuse these things? What are you going to try to reduce rents? Are you going to try to make it easier for business? Are you going to try to maybe make some space for the homeless? Make some space for affordable housing? We should be able to get some insight fairly quickly into the thinking of an Adams administration, at least in the first couple months after he takes office on those things, and that'll tell us a lot. Mm. And. um... Any, any
1: thoughts on how he might handle the NYPD? Uh, he was a 22-year veteran of the force. Obviously, believes uh, deeply in the value of policing, but he also knows where the skeletons lie inside the police force and inside the police unions.
7: Well, he's he's not a he's not an NYPD revolutionary. He's, he has made a point of saying he doesn't want to defund the police, uh, even though that slogan stands for something other than. Money, it stands for the the way in which the police force really operates often as a rogue agency. I mean, look, the the, the clearest thing on which he's going to be judged and, and the people that, that your reporters in the street were getting, you know, people are talking about safety and uh, and crime. I mean, this is something that he is going to recognize. This is, you know, uh, he needs to be able to show that he can try to hopefully find those pockets of where crime is happening and, and bring it down. So. You know, he he had this very strange quote in a New York Times profile last month where he said something along the lines of, I'm glad I don't have to run the police department. I'll have a police commissioner. <laughs> so, you know, that, that suggests that, OK, he's going to be a hands off person. I, I don't think that'll be true, but mm. who he chooses and how that plays out with the police force, that, that'll be probably the single most telling appointment that he makes at this point.
1: OK, and. Uh, one more question before we have to go, which, it, uh, which is your assessment of his um, soon-to-be predecessor, uh, Bill de Blasio. <laughs> I, uh,
7: it, it it almost makes you cry, John. It really does. This is this is a guy who was elected with so much hope eight years ago. You know, we, we really believed that he was going to try to address the tale of two cities. And what did he do really after? I mean, he did some very good things in his first years in office. Universal pre-K, you know, bringing the $15 an hour wage. But then he somehow, he got so enamored of the idea of running for higher office president. He looked in the mirror and he saw the next president of the United States. And that was just... That was fatal. I don't think he ever recovered from that and got his eye back on the ball. And it's been so many years later. And I think that's why his ratings have been so low. People know that he just really hasn't been focused on the job.
1: Mm. All right. We'll have to leave it there. But Tom Robbins, a host of uh, Deadline NYC, Mondays 5 to 6 p.m. on uh, on WBI. Thank you so much for joining us this evening for our election night special.
7: My pleasure. Thanks so much for doing this, John. Take care. You
1: bet. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, we'll be back after a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk with two elected officials that uh, Eric Adams will have to deal with. Uh, a, a new member of uh, City Council, Alexis uh, Alexa Aviles from Sunset Park, and State Senator Jabari Brisport. After all, the mayor uh, has to uh, make their way up to Albany to get a lot done here back here in the city. So uh, we look forward to talking to both of them in a moment.
9: Day is all about the biggest gun we've got is called the ballot box. So if you don't like who's in there, vote out. your clowns. You voted in. Election day is coming.
1: Vote out by Willie Nelson. You're listening to the Independence Election Night Special here on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton. The polls have already closed in Virginia, site of a hotly contested governor's race we are closely following. Uh, right now, with only 4% of the vote in, the uh, Republican Glenn Yonkin is up by about six points over Democrat Terry McAuliffe. However, most of the uh, votes that have come in so far are coming from. Uh, rural parts of Virginia and a little bit around Richmond and nothing from the Washington, D.C. Uh, metro area where McAuliffe will run strongest. Uh, also, polls will close at 8 p.m. in New Jersey and 9 p.m. here in New York, where Ad- Eric Adams is the overwhelming favorite to be elected as New York City's 110th mayor and its second African-American mayor. We spoke a few moments ago with Tom Robbins about what kind of mayor uh, Eric Adams might be and the people uh, he has surrounded himself with But no mayor is an island unto himself. They have to work with city council. They also have to work with the governor and state legislators in Albany, which wields tremendous power over the city. Joining us now to talk about uh, how they see things going with the city government uh, under Eric Adams. uh, It is uh, Alexa Aviles. Uh, She's uh, a newly uh, elected city council member in district 38 in South Brooklyn. She won the Democratic primary in June and had no opponent on the ballot today. And also we're going to be joined by Jabari Brisport, who won a central Brooklyn state Senate seat in 2020, and he has had a very busy first year in the state legislature. They are both Democratic socialists who ran for office as champions of the working class. Welcome both of you to WBAI's election night special. Good evening,
5: John. Great to be here.
4: Good
10: evening. So happy to be here.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Councilmember Elect. uh, uh, First of all, congratulations on your victory and uh, your thoughts on on uh, Eric Adams and going you're going to be going to work at City Hall as well on on January 1. And uh, what your hopes and expectations are uh, working with the the new mayor? Is it possible? I mean, he's been very critical of of socialists and the left in general in New York. Uh, Your thoughts?
10: Yeah, thank you so much. It's a great question. You know, um, my expectation is that, you know, this mayor and this council really deliver for working class people in New York City. And we have obviously some many policy differences, but at the end of the day, it is really improving the lives the, the material conditions of our people here in New York City that we have to deliver for. So, you know, I expect that we should be able to work through stuff and really address the critical issues, right? Housing is really critical, climate change, you know, safety in our streets. Um, I think these are, you know, many many of the areas that I hope we will find some common ground and just really be able to support, you know, the residents of our communities who have been really suffering uh, through this pandemic and before.
1: Right, and uh, there, there's going to be a fairly large block of, of uh, socialist and, and progressive uh, city council members, many of them newly, newly elected. It seems like maybe roughly 15 or 16, including uh, yourself and Tiffany Caban, who were elected as and um, endorsed by the Democratic Socialists of America. And there's three other council members who identify as socialists, I believe. Uh, what kind of impact do you think that this larger uh, left-wing block on city council can have?
10: Yeah, I think you know we are focused on you know doing the work right, and pushing, pushing, changing the narratives, and really centering uh, working class people, right? Centering the most marginalized in our policies, in our operations. So you know, I think I think we're going to work hard to build a coalition. Uh, work hard to make sure that our policies, our legislation, um, how the agencies operate really do center our communities. So, you know, I, I'm feeling optimistic. I think, you know, in addition to, you know, this growing left block, um, you know, it is a council also with the first time of majority women. Um, so I think there's going to be a real culture shift, um, in this body. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to working with them.
1: Right. And speaking of city council, the one of the most important things you'll do will be at the beginning of your term when you, when the 51 of you all uh, decide who will be the next city council speaker, uh, have you settled on someone is who you want to support? And if not, what are you looking for in the next uh, city council speaker?
10: Yeah, no, we are, um, I am, and we are all hard at work, um, really deliberating um, what is possible there. Uh, You know, I think, we are expecting a speaker that really centers the members, a speaker that will, you know, be a check and balance to the administration, um, a speaker who's really going to dive into what does equity look like in the body, in the budget, you know, in policy, um, really kind of commit to moving things boldly forward uh, for the members. Um, so I think, you know, those are definitely some of the things, obviously there are many, you know, policy elements that we're looking at. But in terms of big picture, you know, we want we want a speaker who's going to stand firm and stand strong for the body, stand strong for, you know, what we believe in and what we're fighting for. Um, And, you know, be the check and balance to the mayor who we may end up being at odds with.
1: And how important is it that the next speaker be a woman, given that all the citywide offices are going to be held by men?
10: I mean I I would personally love that given you know we have the first majority of the of this body be a woman but honestly right most importantly is shared values and commitment um, to making sure that our the lives of our people are improved right and that we really um, do better uh so you know and also you know shift shift the system um Honestly, so I think it is important, but values and, you know, vision are even more important. So I'm, I'm looking for someone that's going have to the, have the both, and may it be a woman, I'd be happy for that.
1: Okay, and I want to bring uh, Jabari uh, Brisport into the conversation. Uh, uh, Senator Brisport, what, uh, your thoughts on Eric Adams and how he'll be received in Albany, and do you have a sense of what he might want? Uh, from the state government.
5: Uh, Yeah, thank you, John. Um, You know, I'm willing to work with whoever is elected mayor tonight to ensure the people of my community and and, and New York City live dignified lives. You know, um, I think the biggest thing that we in Albany can offer is that uh, the reassurance that uh, we will be fighting, you know, progressives and and left-leaning electors will be fighting to you know, increase taxes on the rich rather than make cuts to any social services. You know, it did trouble me on the campaign trail hearing that he would be open to potentially cutting um, areas of the city budget. Um, and I, I worried where, where those cuts might come from. I would certainly hope they don't come from the Department of Education as, as a former teacher. So, um, you know, I'd be happy to work with him to ensure that, you know, the things that people in New York City need are well funded. Uh, if anything could be defunded, it would probably be the, the police department in, in my opinion, which I, I know myself and, and, you know, Adams don't, don't see eye, eye to eye on. And in terms of uh, how we'll be working with the governor, you know, that that's to be seen. We have a new governor right now, and there's an election for that coming up soon. And it's, it's a lot of new, uh, new, new alchemy that's about to happen. So, you know, there is, there is a lot up in the air.
1: Right. And, and uh, want to delve a little bit more into uh, public education. Uh, you all both have a, a background with that. Uh, Alexa, you were as, you've been a school parent leader uh, in Sunset Park for many years. And uh, Jabari, you were a middle school math teacher in Crown Heights before you uh, were elected to the state senate. Um, uh, your, your thoughts on uh, Eric Adams and, and public education. He's certainly been uh, bankrolled by uh, billionaires who uh, strongly favored charter schools. In, in this election cycle, y- your thoughts on where we may be headed with the schools, and also uh, where the schools should be going after this uh, 18 months of the pandemic?
5: Yeah, I, I would say that I've had the pleasure of hearing Eric Adams tell a really a beautiful story in, in, in two uh, scenarios or two locations so far, uh, really talking about his childhood and having learning difficulties in school and. Actually, tying that to the situation at Rikers, and, and really, how many incarcerated men have dyslexia or ha, you know have suffered from learning difficulties? And when I hear that, I understand. I hear the I hear the words of a man who understands that the deficits in public spending on community programs or social services or things like education ultimately end up hurting us in the end. So it is troubling to you know know about some of where his donations are coming from, especially in the charter school industry. But I would hope that if he he understands that when we don't spend enough on education, it leads to unstable communities, that he would work with the Department of Education and work with teachers to ensure that our schools are fully
1: funded. Alexa, your thoughts?
10: I'm playing with the mute button. Okay. Um, I I can't agree with uh, Senator Brisport um, anymore, but certainly I'd add, you know, I think, you know, we're committed to public quality, public education for all children. Um, and I think um, we will continue to make sure that is front and center. Uh, it should not depend on a family's income or where they grew up or whether they speak, um, you know, a particular language. All children should have access to quality education. And, you know, that will be our fight. With, with the increased funding that we've received from the federal government, um, you know, I think what we'll also want to ensure is that parents and young people have voice and oversight in those resources to make sure that they are actually going to the things that are most important. Um, and so, you know, I think we'll, we'll be watching, uh, very closely and we will continue to make sure that the people at the center of the education system, parents, youth and educators continue to be centered and lifted up and, uh that we not continue down the privatization path of making sure that you know corporations continue to maximize profits over centering you know education of young people um so that will be our commitment and i think you know we'll be watching really closely and i hope as as senator brisport mentioned uh that the administration will remember the interconnections and how fundamental education is uh for for the outcome of young people's lives so you know, I think I think we'll be we'll be watching very closely,
1: right? And and Senator Brisport, you mentioned a few minutes ago the agency you would most like to see uh, defunded or at least have its budget reduced. It would be the NYPD. Uh, however, uh, that we're probably not headed in that direction with a uh, uh, Mayor Adams. But your thoughts on kind of the trajectory of the last year and a half or so of how we went? from these enormous uh, Black Lives Matter protests after the police murder of George Floyd, uh, as, as many as 26 million people in the streets of, of the United States in hundreds of cities, a month of massive protests here in New York, uh, attempts to uh, cut the police budget uh, last summer, uh, in the summer of 2020. And and, um, and, and how we got to this point where uh, a, someone who's a fairly conservative Democrat and a former uh, police officer is about to be elected mayor, and, who largely ran on a law and order platform. Um, y- y- your thoughts on that, and, and what it, how the left needs to, uh, I guess, grapple with this turn of events. I mean, I
5: think there will be an
1: interesting. Dynamic
5: between a very left-leaning city council, where there are about five open socialists sitting on the city council, many left-leaning progressives, m- many of them who ran on platforms of defunding the police, you know, some of some as much as, as three billion dollars, and that in contrast with the mayoral administration, which has uh, stood in opposition to that. You know, we really have two different visions for New York City. Which will essentially be competing um, to one another, and I would just hope that you know when we are talking about defunding anything, the only thing I've I've, I've heard from the, the incoming administration is that they're open to defunding other agencies, and I, you know I would I would expect, and I'll fight with council members to ensure that those other agencies, especially the Department of Education, is not defunded.
1: And Council Member Elect uh, Abaylase, your your thoughts on on the defunding the police and, and... Um, you know, how the new council should uh, uh, handle the NYPD?
10: Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's uh, it's pretty well documented that a good number of the council members, as Senator Briscoe mentioned, right, really has dug into the fact that the agency's budget is incredibly bloated and we continue to, to pad it, even though the agency is ill-equipped Um, to really kind of deal with the multiple issues that seem to be thrown at it. And so it continues to be, from our perspective, a place where there can be cuts. Um, Because if we are truly invested in the health and well-being of our communities, we know where those investments need to go. Those investments need to go in making sure people have stable housing, to make sure that they have stable employment, that they have food, that they have health care um so you know i think i think this council really you know is coming in with a very different perspective certainly there is a wide range of perspectives right we are a body of 51 um but i think you know we will be having some real conversations certainly is the first time where you have you know a majority than a handful of council members who have expressed real commitment to to ensuring that there is some reinvestment real reinvestment in our communities and not just investing in carceral systems.
1: Right. And, and, and last question for you, uh, council member elect, uh, uh, once elected politicians often become remote and inaccessible to, uh, ordinary people to the people who put them in office as you prepare to take office, what steps are you taking to uh, co-govern more with, uh, constituents and really bring them into the small D uh, democratic process?
10: Yes, yes, this is this is something that really excites me the most and where I really hope to improve um, in our district. So really, you know, I believe we need an organizer in the office, right, who is going to bring residents from across the district to fight for all the issues uh that we're confronting, right, to make sure that we're fighting market rate housing and organizing around um, protecting NYCHA, our public housing, uh, you know our fights across the district are the same, right? We're working class people that really need um, some additional support, and so I think that our office will be open. We will be supporting residents to organize together to build solutions where they're centered, right? Solutions that come yes. from them. You know we need we need a city planning that works for working people, not just for real estate developers. So. You know, I hope we we're going to have a council that fights uh, for our people's priorities in the budget. And we're going to be doing that together with residents across the district. So I'm really excited about the opportunity
1: okay. to
10: work differently.
1: OK, we'll have to leave it there. But uh, I thank you both. Uh, council Member uh, Alexa Aviles and State Senator Jabari Brisport, both members of the Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, for our election night special on uh, WBAI.
10: Awesome. Thank you so
1: much. Thank you, everyone. Okay. Thank you, John. Pleasure to be here. You bet. We'll be, we'll be in touch again. All right. We'll, we'll be back after a short break. And when we return, we'll talk with Alex Vitali, author of The End of Policing, both about uh, what's ahead for the NYPD and policing here in New York uh, under the Adams administration, but also look at uh, what's going on around the country and how it's affecting some of the elections uh, going on today. Blue by Lester Young. You're listening to the Independence 2021 Election Night Special here on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor of The Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. Uh, Since 2000, we're online at independent.org. That's I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. It's great to be here with you this evening on WBAI, listener-sponsored community radio. Before we continue on to our next segment, Please consider making a contribution tonight. You can call. We'll give you. You can call or go to give number two wbaiorg and you can make a, a generous one time contribution, or you can sign up to become a WBAI buddy for as little as ten dollars a month, and you'll be eligible for many awesome benefits. More importantly, you'll help keep WBAI on the air, beaming its 50,000-watt signal across the greater New York City region, amplifying all the unique visionary voices you're hearing on this show tonight and on this station every day. Again, that number is 212-209-2950, or you can go to give2wbai.org. number two, WBAI.org. Moving on, polls here in New York remain open until 9 p.m., Former NYPD police captain and Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams will almost certainly be elected the next mayor of New York City. His victory in the Democratic primary was fueled by his emphasis on policing and public safety in his biography as a former police officer. The future of policing has also been a flashpoint in a number of other big city mayors races that are on the ballot today. Joining us now to talk about all this is Alex Vitale. Uh, Alex is a professor of sociology at Brooklyn College and author of The End of Policing, year uh, the the book came out several years ago, and last year it, it really uh, took off to the top of the charts in the wake of the George Floyd protests. It's been translated into many languages around the world. In uh, his book, uh, In the End of Policing, uh, Alex argues that the police as an institution are ill-suited for almost all of the work they do and that their interactions with the public should be reduced to the absolute minimum possible. Needless to say, Eric Adams feels differently. Alex, welcome to WBAI Radio. Hi, John. Glad to be here. You bet. And thank you for joining us tonight. Um, so uh, your your initial thoughts on on Eric Adams um, on the verge of becoming mayor and uh, it, how you think he'll uh, oversee the police start department? And is there any hope that somebody who is so familiar with the police department might uh, root out at least some of the uh, the problems that have existed inside the NYPD for a very long time.
2: Well, I think as some of your earlier guests pointed out, Adams is kind of a wealth of contradictions. He's trying to have it always simultaneously right. He's trying to appeal to the the little guy out in the neighborhoods who's been left out of the the phenomenal growth at the center of the New York economy, and he's also pandering to the billionaire class. You know, he says he wants to invest in communities to address the root causes of problems, but he also wants to invest in policing while probably pledging to cut taxes for the richest folks. So it's not clear how he can actually govern based on what he's campaigned on. He's trying to do it all. And, And I will just say one other thing that kind of points out what a contradictory figure he is, you know uh Adams is not Giuliani uh if if and the the evidence of this is to look at who his republican opponent is who is going to you know get some of the lowest poll numbers in the city's history i think tonight right so mm-hmm. voters were given the choice of someone who was truly going to be a no holds bar law and order sick the police on everything choice and and they've overwhelmingly rejected that because I think a lot of people understand that Adams is going to put some resources into communities. He is going to under pressure, perhaps embrace some of these alternative public safety infrastructures. And then we'll just have to see what happens with policing down the line. And, and there's some irony in that.
1: uh, It seems like, at least some of the proposals that have come out of the police reform movement may may be adopted, even as he uh, continues to denounce, uh, defund the police.
2: Yeah, I think that, um, you know, we we don't need to frame this conversation so specifically around those particular three words. I think as, As we heard from Alex and Jabari, there's a whole host of folks coming into office in the city council who ran on a platform of making their communities safer than they are today, but without relying on the NYPD as the tool for doing that because they understand as well as anyone just what a harmful tool the NYPD can be when it's unleashed in their communities. So I think that, you know, Adams's rhetoric will have to see what it actually turns to in terms of policy.
1: Okay. And and looking beyond New York, uh, you know, Adams uh, back this summer uh, celebrated himself as the, the new face of the Democratic Party. And at least in, in some other cities, uh, we see a sort of a similar dynamic of a uh, conservative Democrat, um, you know, trying to unite both the business class and – people of color who are concerned about uh, crime. We've seen this in, in Buffalo, uh, where uh, uh, Byron Brown is trying to bounce back from his primary defeat and, and, and take out Indi- uh, socialist India Walton and also in Atlanta. And then in, 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 can you talk about that a little bit? And also about Minneapolis, where there's a, a, a ballot initiative where voters uh, today have the chance to abolish the police department and replace it with something different.
2: So, look, there is a a war over the heart of the Democratic Party and the corporate power base that supports Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer is terrified of the momentum coming out of the victories of AOC and then Cori Bush and St. Louis and And lots of people winning local races around the country as either Democratic Socialists or a new kind of progressive that fundamentally rejects the kind of austerity politics that have been at the heart of the Democratic Party. And so any time they can latch on to someone who they see as standing in opposition to that new, more progressive wing of the party, they're going to do that. And so, you know, Eric Adams says a few things about I'm against defund the police, and then he becomes a champion of this centrist corporate wing of the party. I think, though, there is a lot of upside still in terms of the ability to get folks elected at the local level around this new politics. And I think, you know, let's hope that India Walton uh, holds on to – Uh, win this victory in Buffalo, which could be really transformative. This would make her the first socialist mayor of a major American city uh, in in many, many decades. And this could be a very uh, tremendous opportunity to rethink not just the policing, but these larger questions of austerity, of more horizontal economic development that where we don't just subsidize a few corporate leaders in hopes that there'll be some trickle-down effect that never materializes, but really thinking concretely how to build prosperity in that city in a way that benefits everyone. In terms of uh, Minneapolis, I mean, we're all waiting to see what happens. If it wins, I mean, it will be quite a remarkable achievement because it will signal – that the folks on the ground there who've been working for years on alternative public safety strategies have managed to cobble together a majoritarian politics in a major American city. If they don't win, well, the movement is still taking place in, in hundreds of cities across the country where people are doing the base building that needs to happen so that then we can win citywide elections, win important referenda. And a lot of cities are not there yet, and no one thought they were going to be there yet. So if it passes, it opens the door to a whole set of potential changes, but it doesn't tell us exactly what these changes are going to look like. And I don't think it's going to look like abolishing the police department in, in the sense that people may think of, about it. What it's going to mean is that we can create new infrastructures of public safety that don't rely exclusively on police. And that it's going to allow us to bring in some new resources and, and take some of the money that's gone to policing and put it into a whole raft of, of community-based interventions. But there's still going to be police in Minneapolis for the foreseeable future. Sure um and,
1: and to what extent uh do you think the, the you know the the wealthier people that support Eric Adams uh, um or maybe adams himself uh see the primary role of policing at, at, as to um just sort of suppress the problems that uh plague the city and, and so so that um uh, you know uh gentrification and and, and Real estate values can continue increasing. Uh, how much of it do you think it, it, is simply carried out as a sort of a form of a, a social management, I guess, if, if you want to call it that?
2: Well, I don't know that these particular contributors are thinking about it in exactly those terms. I think they understand that Eric Adams is engaged in a kind of transactional politics Okay, and it's going to matter who gives him money, and there's going to be a tremendous amount of insider dealing in the in an Adams administration. We just look at the folks that he's had in his team and the way he's cozying up to people. But the larger truth that you allude to, I think, is definitely the case. If he, if Adams continues to make deals that benefit the one percent. This is going to exacerbate the social problems of mass homelessness, untreated mental health and substance abuse problems, you know, black market activity and all the rest. And policing is going to be the central tool that those people will demand gets used to manage those problems. And so that is really what we're up against here. So we can't understand the the role of policing in society independently of these larger questions of economic and racial justice.
1: Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there. But uh, Alex Vitale, author of The End of Policing, thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI for our election night special.
2: You're welcome, John. Thanks for having me on.
1: You bet. Always great to have you with us. Okay, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll come back. Uh, with uh, Ben Max, executive editor of Gotham Gazette, we also have some more great guests uh, in store for the second hour, including uh, Linda Martine Alcoff. Uh, she, we're going to be talking with her about the race in Virginia and the, the use of uh, really uh, incendiary racial appeals and, and what that means for the next phase of the Trump Republican party. And uh, we'll also hear uh, from New Jersey and Buffalo. Uh, we've been talking a little bit about India Walton. We're going to hear more about her. And, uh, but first we're going to take this short break. Easy living by Clifford Brown. You're listening to the independence election night special here on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton. We have another great hour of guests ahead of us. Um, we're also following, uh, results, uh, coming in, uh, from various areas. A-, a lot of polls are on the East coast are closing at eight o'clock. New York will close at nine o'clock. Uh, Virginia closed at 7 PM and the votes are starting to roll in there. Um, according to Associated Press, with 37% of votes reported. uh, Republican private equity executive uh, Glenn Yonkin is leading by 10 points over former Governor Terry McAuliffe, uh, who is a a longtime uh, Clinton acolyte and and prominent figure in the Democratic Party. And uh, and those votes are also coming in now from the Washington, D.C. metro area, where the Democrats are strongest. And frankly, in some of those counties... Uh McAuliffe is leading, by, but not by the kind of margins that uh, most observers uh, said he would need to carry the election today. So at least so far, uh, things are looking really good for the Republicans uh, regaining the governor's seat in Virginia. Um, the House of Delegates, the lower house of the assembly there, is also up for grabs. Uh, with the uh, Yonkin running uh, so strongly at the tro- top of the ticket, that probably bodes well in the down ballot races. Uh, Virginia was a state that Joe Biden carried by 10 points uh, in the election last year. It was also a state where he decisively defeated Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary earlier in 2020. So Virginia is a swing state that had been has been trending uh, Democratic over the last decade. Uh, now uh, Republicans are coming on strong. And we will be talking a little later in this hour with Linda Martine Alkoff, really about how th- – uh, Yonkin and, and, the Republicans, uh, completely leaned into in, incendiary, uh, 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 racial dog whistling and, uh, really trying to find any way they could to tap into, uh, white racism or white racial anxiety, whatever you want to call it. So we will be talking about that a little bit later this hour, a very, uh, troubling sign for where the country might be headed over the next several years. Uh, but, uh, first of all, we're, we're gonna, um, talk with uh, Ben Max. We're going to talk some more about what's uh, happening in New York city with uh, all the, the new crop of uh, uh, people that are going to be coming into office. Uh, uh, Ben is the executive editor of Gotham Gazette. uh, Also hosts uh, Max politics uh, here on WBAI on Wednesdays from five to 6. PM. Ben, welcome to our election night
11: special. Hey, John, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me back.
1: You bet. Uh, So, uh, your, your initial thoughts uh, on on uh, Eric Adams and, and some of these uh, other folks who are coming into office uh, starting January 1st, who whose uh, outcomes will be decided uh, tonight?
11: Yeah, it's kind of anticlimactic here as general elections often go in New York City with the Democrats having such a big voter enrollment advantage. It's usually the primaries where things are really battled out, as we saw again this year anything could happen here. Polls aren't even closed yet, but we obviously expect Eric Adams to be victorious and become the next mayor. We expect uh, Jamani Williams to be a reelected public advocate, Brad Lander to be elected controller and onward down the ballot. We go where Democrats are expected to, uh, to win just about every seat in city government, except for a few. And there's some interesting races to watch uh, down the ballot a bit, Uh, a really uh, momentous, um, Manhattan district attorney race as well, as I know you've discussed and, um, and a lot more. So, you know, I think once we, once we see this finalized, you know, some of the most interesting things of the entire year that this election has been happening will really start to take place where we'll see Eric Adams, who everybody's expected to be the next mayor since he won the primary in in June, we found out the results in July, um, you know, see him start to really form his government. And that will really give a lot of indi- indication about the types of decisions he's going to make. Eric Adams is a very complicated figure. It's really hard to tell exactly where his priorities are. Uh, we don't know what issues maybe save for a few that he's really going to prioritize. And we don't really know how he's going to govern because he talks a lot about some very big sweeping principles, but we've also seen him... Uh, sort of cater to the audience that he's speaking to, change his positions on some things. Uh, We don't know if he's going to sort of be more of a machine politician and repay favors, or if he's really going to try to hire the right people for all the jobs that he has to fill. So there's some huge question marks about the very likely next mayor that we're going to really start to see some answers to in the next weeks and months as he starts to, you know, really give indication of his priorities and his appointees.
1: Right. And actually, before we Jumping uh, ahead into talking about some of the other uh, key people who will be taking office in January. Uh, Can you give us any update on uh, competitive races that are happening um, today in New York? There's at least a few.
11: Yeah. You know, the only ones that seem to be competitive are the Staten Island borough president race, um, which typically goes Republican and, and is likely to, again, is former Uh, congressional representative Vita Fasella is trying to make a political comeback. um, And he's, he's likely to win that, but there, but that's an interesting one because there's a conservative uh, party nominee that could take some votes from him, uh, Letitia Romaro. And so there's a chance that uh, the democratic nominee, Mark Murphy would, would sneak through, but the Staten Island borough president race is an interesting one to watch. And then there's really just a handful of um, city council races that I'm watching, and, and lots of people are watching, but it's really a small number. Um, I can go through some of the districts quickly, but you know, it's a handful of districts. A couple of them are currently represented by Republicans, a couple by Democrats. They could go either way. They're somewhat significant in terms of the representation that those districts get, but they will not shift the balance of power in the next city council in any you know, discernible way you know depending on who those city council members are they might influence who the next speaker of the city council is that's a pretty you know huge deal that's one of the most powerful people in city government so you know it matters there one of the swing districts is actually district 43 in southern brooklyn where city council member justin brannon who won the seat four years ago by under 800 votes if I, if i remember the numbers correctly He's trying to win reelection in in what's something of a swing district, generally speaking, you know, including the sort of surrounding areas. Um, And he's trying to become the next speaker of the city council, which is a pretty big rarity that someone from one of these handful of swing districts would also be a speaker candidate. I think broadly speaking across the city, that race, the race in uh, Queens in District 32, which is represented by moderate Republican Eric Ulrich right now, is seen as a bellwether of some kind because there's sort of a pretty far left progressive Democrat, Felicia Singh, running against a more uh, further to the right than Ulrich Republican, Joanne Ariolo, who's running uh, as a Republican nominee. So that's a pretty interesting one. And then the last one I'll mention for now, there's a couple others, but back to Staten Island, the Mid-Island District, which is currently represented and usually is represented by a Republican uh, term limited, Stephen Matteo is on the way out. And there's an interesting race to replace him there. One of his top aides, David Carr, is the Republican nominee. And then former city council member Sal Albanese, who used to represent a part of Brooklyn, has moved to Staten Island a few years ago. He's run for mayor several times. People are probably familiar with the name. He's the Democratic nominee. And that one will be interesting. That's another one. There's an interesting little trend here where there is a conservative party nominee on the ballot as well, which maybe could help throw the, the race to the Democrat.
1: Right. And uh, also uh, qu- quickly, the, there's uh, five uh, ballot initiatives uh, on the ballot for uh, voters in New York state uh, today that cover redistricting, uh, increase, uh, making it easier for people to, to vote, and also uh, one initiative that would uh, guarantee uh, a constitutional right to clean air and water um, for New Yorkers. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about these five initiatives and, and where did they come from?
11: Sure. You know, as far as I'm concerned, there's a lot of interesting, uh, you know, sort of final points being put on the long campaign here, but there's not a lot of drama tonight, as we've talked about. Um, you know, there's history that will be made, including very likely Alvin Bragg as the first black Manhattan district attorney, Eric Adams, et cetera, as we've talked about. But perhaps the most interesting things happening tonight are these five ballot proposals because they are, they do represent some really big changes to New York. Voters across the state are voting yes or no on the five ballot proposals. Um, you know, I think the first one's fairly controversial. It's got a hodgepodge of things in it. I think it's kind of a problem that they put all these different pieces in the one yes or no question because there's some important technical changes to the redistricting process in there. But then there's also some controversial changes to how the lines of the new, uh, you know, state legislative and congressional districts are drawn and, you know, how how they're approved, those new maps. And, uh, you know, there's some questions about the details there. I could go into that more if you want. But that one's very interesting. Uh, it has some other aspects to it that I didn't even mention. And then, you know, I think question two is very interesting about the right to clean air and water in a healthful environment. That could really change a lot of things in New York where governments, private industry would have to really uh, change some of their practices if that is a constitutional right for all New Yorkers, if that's approved. So that's really interesting one to watch. And then questions three and four that could potentially lead to some major changes in voting rights and rules around no excuse absentee balloting, which would basically mean, you know, people can vote by mail as they see fit moving forward. We've had some of that during the pandemic, of course. And then same-day voter registration uh, would be on the table, uh, and, you know, that, that's a significant one for people who, you know, have just moved or whatever it might be, just getting engaged in politics and they want to register to vote and vote on the same day, same-day voter registration could be uh, a possibility if if question three is approved. So, and then the fifth one is a, is a kind of technical change to the New York City Civil Court that, uh, you know, I wouldn't expect there to be a lot of objection to
1: right and and just one other aspect of that uh first of the five ballot initiatives uh it would uh, it, it would it would change uh how uh, uh prisoners in new york how their uh, home address is uh, is counted they yeah. would be considered to be living in the in the their place of residence before their incarceration instead of, of being uh counted as living in the rural counties uh, where they are incarcerated so that's
8: that's f- you know, 40
1: 45,000 yeah. people who whose um you know residents will will shift and, and be more accurately reflected
11: yeah i mean that's one of several parts of question 1 i'm glad you brought that up that would very clearly uh lean towards favoring democrats overall and that's why there's some controversy around you know some of of question 1 because you know Democrats obviously have so much power and control in New York as it is, and so there's been some questions raised about, you know, whether not not so much on the on the, um, you know, the apportionment uh, issue you just raised about incarcerated individuals and and where they're counted. There's obviously some conservative pushback on that, but um, just in terms of that that I mentioned earlier about the uh, approval process for the new maps and and sort of giving the majority party in the legislature an easier path to just drawing their own maps or approving the map. So a lot of interesting parts to question one. And I'm I'm glad you raised that part too. Right.
1: And and, uh, in the June primaries, uh, Eric Adams uh, victory was a a big disappointment for uh, many uh, progressives and people on the left here in New York. There were several candidates that uh, really sort of imploded uh, uh, on the left, but one, uh, one uh, candidate who did win, who, uh, has been seen as a champion of progressive causes in the last eight years on city council is brad lander who uh is on the verge today of uh being elected the next city comptroller taking over from scott stringer and uh we 're going to play a clip of him in, in a in a moment um uh speaking at uh, the debate uh uh last week that he had with his uh republican uh opponent and uh but before that clip uh, uh, comes on, you're. Well, let's see. I think we have that clip ready to go now, and then I'll ask you to talk a little bit more about uh, Brad Lander.
8: This is not a startup. This is a city where the leader must have been a worker. And you're not going to come to this city and think you're going to disregard the people who make this city work.
1: Okay, so well, that was not Brad Lander. <laughs>
8: nope
11: but, <laughs> that
1: uh that was uh, eric adams uh, uh you know yeah. sharing some thoughts on the uh campaign trail recently um so we we may we may hear from brad lander in a moment but uh, uh your thoughts on lander becoming a city comptroller and and what he might be able to accomplish
11: but, yeah let me quickly say that you know back to eric adams for a second because so much of what brad lander does as controller will be playing off of or trying to influence or holding accountable Eric Adams. So that's going to be a very interesting relationship to watch um, as it always is between the mayor and the controller. Um, And about Eric Adams, you know, he's definitely was more of a moderate centrist in the mayoral race, but he has a hodgepodge of proposals and policy stances that are not easily captured just by, you know, calling him a moderate or a centrist I found. And so I think it'll be very interesting because Brad Lander is clearly about to step up. And and with Jermani Williams, the public advocate, we'll see if he's going to run for governor in the in the next primary. Right. But, but Lander and Williams together are basically going to be the citywide, you know, in a, in a manner of speaking, I'm sure they'll partner in some things. They partner in a lot of things and they'll do their own separate things. But in a manner of speaking, they're going to be sort of this progressive, you know, citywide leadership for New York City, probably trying to push Eric Adams further left on a number of issues, hold him accountable on a number of issues. So Brad Lander, you know, is really stepping up into a major role here that is going to have a lot of influence over, you know, city discourse and debate on a number of issues. And it'll be very interesting to see how he fulfills that role. You know, obviously um, auditing, you know, city agencies, both based on how they're, you know, spending money, but also just performance, programming, and such. You know, he'll have a significant voice there through the audits and reports that the office puts out. And then the way that, you know, he tries to influence the decisions of the city's five public pension funds and their many hundreds of billions of dollars of investments, you know, will also be very interesting as he is someone who, you know, is very focused on uh, climate change, environmental justice, you know, and a, and a just transition. So I think he's going to become, uh, you know, among the progressive sort of standard bearers in the city, and it'll be very interesting to watch.
1: Okay, we're going to have to leave in a moment, but uh, your, your uh, show Max Politics uh, will be uh, on the air tomorrow at 5 to 6 p.m. Will you be following up on, uh, on the elections as well?
11: Yes, thanks. Everybody should tune in at five PM Wednesday. Um, yes, we will be breaking down the results. I'm still figuring out who's going to join me to do that. I have a couple guests uh, lined up, but uh, but everyone should tune in for that. We'll be we'll be analyzing some of the same stuff once we know the actual results um, and and getting into what we might expect from some of uh, some of the winners and 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 breaking down what we know.
1: All right. Well, Ben Max, always uh, on top of uh, New York City politics. Thank you so much for joining us this evening on our election night special.
11: It's my pleasure. Enjoying the show. And uh, thanks for having me.
1: You bet. All right. We'll be coming back after a short break. And when we do, we'll get uh, updates uh, from New Jersey and from Buffalo, where socialist India Walton uh, is trying to knock off four term incumbent Byron Brown. And as somebody noted earlier in the show, she would be the first socialist elected mayor. In more than 60 years in the United States. And there's also some uh, interesting uh, developments in New Jersey. And we're going to hear uh, from someone over there as well. We'll be back in a moment.
12: You're broken down and tired of living life on the merry go round. And you can't find a fighter. But I see it in you, so we're going to walk it out. out yeah. and- know you feel like
1: That was Andre. Day. Rise up. You're listening to the Independence Election Night special here on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton. Uh, so in our next segment, we're going to uh, look beyond New York City. We've talked a lot about Eric Adams, Brad Lander, city council, etc. But there's a world beyond the Hudson River where uh, important elections are also occurring today, including right across the Hudson River over in New Jersey where the Democratic Party machine has uh, long dominated uh, certainly the urban uh, areas in that state and uh, controls the state politics uh, pretty tightly. But there are uh, progressive insurgents that have been pushing back against that in recent years. And uh, we're going to talk with one of them in a moment. And also in a few minutes, we're going to hear from Buffalo, New York, uh, where India Walton is trying to uh, win a historic victory uh, she would be the first socialist elected to lead a major American city in more than six decades. She won the Democratic primary against four-term incumbent Byron Brown. But Brown has mounted a well-funded write-in uh, a campaign and has uh, been bankrolled by many of the wealthiest people in western New York and um, is coming in tonight uh, is seen as a favorite to win. But Walton has also mounted a, uh, a really tremendous campaign. So that race is uh, up for grabs. Uh, but first of all, we're going to talk about uh, New Jersey uh, with Imani Oakley. Uh, she's running for Congress in the in the 10th district as a, a progressive Democrat, uh, aspiring future member of the squad uh, supports many of those same policies, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, uh, uh, abolishing student loan debt, uh, et cetera. Uh, the 10th district in, encompasses, uh, Newark and, uh, adjacent towns. Uh, Imani, are you there?
6: I am John. Thank you for having me. Hello. Can you
1: hear me? We'll be decided next year. Uh, can you, uh, update us on, on what's going on today in New Jersey? And I know you were campaigning over the, uh, the weekend in, um, in Jersey City, Hudson County is a real bastion of the uh, party machine. What what kind of races are going on over there uh, today?
6: Yeah, definitely. We've actually got some really exciting races. Um, there is a progressive pretty much on every level of the municipal races in Jersey City. Uh, this past weekend, I went to go canvas for uh, Joel Brooks, who is you know backed by DSA um and who is was a socialist, a uh, union organizer, really really great guy. Um and that that was great going out and knocking doors for him. The energy is really high. Um and then I also knocked doors for Councilman James Solomon who uh is an incumbent actually, um but he is being challenged by somebody who is part of uh, you know, the machine in Jersey sh- in Jersey City. And, uh, James Solomon though, again, you know, he's been in the community whenever I walk around Jersey city with James, he knows everybody like people know him by face and by name. And, you know, he's friendly with everyone and everyone like approves of the job that he's doing. So I'm, I'm really not worried about that race at all. Uh, but I, I did help him knock doors because you can never be too careful. So, so definitely helped, uh, both those folks knock doors and I'm, I'm feeling good about the momentum there.
1: Right. And there's been, uh, uh, some concerns expressed that the Democratic governor of New Jersey, uh, Philip Murse- Murphy uh, might uh, have an enthusiasm gap uh, against his uh, Republican opponent, Jack Sia, Sia Trelli. Um, the early results coming in from New Jersey, uh, Murphy's up by more than 30 points, but w- um, we don't know where those uh, votes are coming from. If those are coming from democratic bastions, uh, but, uh, Your thoughts on the perception that there might be an enthusiasm gap for the uh, normie Democrats in uh, New Jersey this year.
6: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's odd because it's, it's hard to tell what that's about. It's hard to tell whether that's about, you know, anything with the campaign or anything with Murphy's policy or whether it's just because New Jersey has off year elections and, you know, people tend not to pay as much attention in off year elections. I mean, it's very hard to tell, um, uh, I do know, you know, the polls over the last couple of weeks have shown the, uh, the gap narrowing between the two. Um, but, you know, we'll see, we'll see what, how it turns out. Um, in either case, you know, I'm, I'm just looking forward to New Jersey continuing to push for the progressive movement. Uh, I mean, there was some talk around if, if it's close and, and and you know Murphy wins, that he might be less progressive, and I absolutely think that's the wrong way to go. Again, that's just talk. Who knows if that's actually what he's thinking? But you know, I definitely think that would be the wrong way to go for New Jersey. Um, I think there's a lot of things that we can look at so that we can improve uh, the outcome for Democrats, um, and a lot of that has to do with getting rid of various machine apparatuses that everyday voters are just kind of tired of, and also that keep pretty lackluster Democrats in office, uh, which then does not excite voters when it comes to election time. So, you know, we'll see how it turns out. There's a lot of, it's one of those races where there's a lot of what ifs and maybes. So I guess we just have to kind of see how tonight turns out, and then we can have a uh, a better idea of what, what's going to look like moving forward.
1: Right. And, and and before we pivot uh, uh, to Buffalo, uh, can you update our listeners on your campaign? Y- your primary is scheduled for uh, next uh, next June, but uh, you're running uh, running hard against uh, five term incumbent Donald Payne Jr. for that congressional seat around Newark.
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So far, so good. So last uh, quarter, we actually outraised him two to one, all individual donors, no PACs, um, definitely no corporate PACs. Uh, our average donation was about $74. So we're feeling really, really good about that because again, it's a guy that's been in there for about 10 years now. Uh, and I was able to outraise him two to one my first time running for office period. Uh, so we feel really good about that. Our next big fight, though, however, is uh, redistricting in New Jersey. Of course, the machine is trying to redistrict me out of NJ10 to, one, give more padding to Mikey Sherrill, who's in a more conservative district, but also do the job of trying to cut me out of running against the incumbent, Um, which is a shame because what it'll also do is cut out a historically Black neighborhood and place them into a district that is considerably more white considerably more conservative and ultimately just culturally you know not in any way familiar and it would make them a voting minority actually um so it's really a shame the game that they're trying to play here they're trying to pit two women against each other to save essentially a lackluster man um and it's really really sad but you know we're gonna fight that fight and uh, i feel confident that we're gonna win
1: Okay, we will continue to to follow your race over there in the New Jersey 10, New York area. Uh, Imani Oakley, um, thank you. You bet. Thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, also, now we're going to uh, pivot to Buffalo, New York, uh, to the other end of the state, uh, with this uh, historic uh, mayor's race. And uh, uh, joining us now is uh, Michael Nyman, uh, professor of uh, journalism and communications uh, at Buffalo State University. Uh, Michael, are you there? I'm here. All right. Thank you for joining us this evening all the way from uh, Buffalo. Uh, The the polls don't close until 9 p.m., so we don't have any results yet. But can you talk about a little bit about who India Walton is and what the impact she's had on the city uh, with her candidacy, uh, her upset victory in the Democratic primary in June and and, and, kind of how she's maybe shaken up a a sclerotic uh, political system there in Buffalo?
0: Yeah, India was one of the uh, organizers of a lot of the uh, act- activities, a lot of the actions, uh, the racial justice protests around the city uh, in the summer of 2020 and then continuing, of course, you know, through the present time. So that's where she really kind of emerged on the radar. And, you know, out of the Black Lives Matter demonstrations in Buffalo, you know, there was a, a lot of suggestions that India run for mayor. And then, you know, the, the rest is history. Uh, invariably, uh, Democratic Socialists. You know, when the hostile media, practically within seconds of, you know, of her being declared the winner in the primary, you know, immediately uh, red baited her. So tell us, are are you really a socialist? And she just just went right into it. It's like she didn't even have to breathe. She just took the air that was already in her lungs and just went right at them. And uh, absolutely, you know, and then started talking about democratic socialism. And yeah, I mean, the only thing, you know, and is that you know? democratic socialism is, is not new to Buffalo politics. It's what's new is actually putting a label on it so that, you know, we have a long history of, of you know, progressive, uh, very progressive, you know, political activities in, in Buffalo, you know, our, our, you know, strong
1: union town, right? right?
0: Strong it, It's strong union town, right? We still have one of the highest uh, per capita percentages of union workers, you know, in the country, but, you know, union enrollment is way down. Uh, Yeah, and also, I mean, we were, you know, back in the, you know, back in the early 1980s, the most conservative council district in uh, Buffalo elected an uh, openly lesbian uh, city, you know, city council member. We passed gay rights legislation uh, that was, you know, more progressive than San Francisco's, you know. Uh, very, very early on. So yeah, and everybody involved in the race, I mean, it's like, you know, India Walton versus Byron Brown. It's, it's not like, you know, it's not like India's running against uh, a Republican. You know, we, we pretty much, you know, our big elections are in the primaries for the citywide, you know, and the city candidate, candidates. We don't have Republicans even fielding anybody, which is why we get to this, this really peculiar situation where we have, you know, India Walton running as the endorsed, you know, Democratic Party candidate, having won the primary and then eventually getting endorsed by Thurston uh, Gillibrand, Chuck Schumer, you know, not the governor, ironically, who's, you know, from the suburbs of Buffalo, but um, by a lot of people, including the local Democratic Party machine, who was pretty quickly on board with India after she won the primary. And you have what was a, a, a very popular 16-year incumbent mayor who's now running as uh, as a writer. So, like, if people, you know, keep asking me, like, you know, and, and other people in Buffalo, you know, in, in the media, um, you know, what are your predictions? Nobody I know is making any predictions because this is, this is off the charts. It's, it's unprecedented. We have nothing to really compare to. And the same situation right now is that here it is, you know, uh, less than a half an hour before the polls close, and we really don't know what to expect tonight. The only thing we've been talking about is how to interpret the results, right? Because we're not going to see any write-ins per se. We just know that there is, you know, you, you fill in one bubble for one oval for, to vote for India Walton, or you fill another one in to vote for a write-in. And there are three write-in candidates, so only one of them really matters here. And it's not even a write-in. I just stopped, you know, by swung by one of the polling places to go pick up my, uh, my free Byron Brown stamp that apparently you know funded by uh, Carl Paladino, the former Republican you know uh, candidate for governor. So they've been mailing
1: that, these uh, stamp voting stamps out to people. Is that well, correct?
0: Well, I'm not really quite sure how they're distributing them. Okay. But you know they're distributing them. There's, you know unions are split on this on this election, right? So the union that represents people in city hall, which would be <laughs> uh, you know, um, is suddenly. Suddenly endorsing Byron Brown, so he's got CSEA and CSEA shop stewards giving out the, giving out the rubber stamps. They've got, uh, people set up at tables, you know, uh, all over the city, outside of polling places, giving out the rubber stamps to people walking by. I mean, you know, traditionally on primary day, which was always, that's our traditional election day because there are no Republicans, right? On primary day, city hall was like, it's like a ghost town because everybody takes a personal holiday and they got to go out and campaign. And that's pretty much it. You know, during the, uh, during the whole, you know, uh, early voting period, you didn't see many Byron Brown people out on the streets. And there were a lot of India Walton volunteers, but today, you know, today, uh, you know, a work day, right? You know, suddenly there's just an army of Byron Brown people out there. So it's very easy just to like swing by in my car and say, Hey, I hear you got a rubber stamp for me. And they hand me this silly little rubber stamp so I can like, you know, like really. You know, but so you get people who so go a souvenir to with rubber stamps. We don't know what's gonna happen, but you know, we're we're all excited because the one thing is that you know everybody who's supporting India Walton, and this is a really, really the most diverse cross section of people in this city that I've ever seen get together. Right? So the people who are supporting India Walton are really stoked and and, and really enthusiastic. And the people supporting Byron Brown is just kind of, you know. I mean, they're doing it, they're supporting Byron, right? But there doesn't need to be much enthusiasm. So I'm thinking that's, you know, against, against the odds of, uh, he does have 16 years of incumbency. Um, he, he did spearhead a lot of really popular development, meaning, you know, we've got a ton of new parks, a lot of waterfront access, you know, and a lot of development in well-heeled sections of the city. But the reality is our population, you know, and this is unprecedented. For the first time in seventy years, our population just went up with the latest census significantly. So, you know, this is a this is a great city to live in uh if you have a middle class job. But we also have the second highest child poverty rate in the country, the third highest overall poverty rate of any major city in the country. And all of this stuff, none of it's been addressed under the Brown administration. In wealthy neighborhoods, you've seen fantastic development, but that is, is a lot of gentrification. You know, the, the thing that really attracted a lot of people to Buffalo from, you know, places like New York City, where I was born, is really cheap housing. So we didn't yeah. have to work these 40 hour work weeks, you know, and, you know, we could be creative, which is why you've got a thriving, you know, vibrant art scene and so on, because people have time to make art. But now we're getting the same problems that you're getting everywhere, you know, in all major cities. And that's, uh, you know, a, a lot of people moving into the city used to paying high rents and paying high rents, driving all this gentrification. And now we have people who can't afford their rents. Uh, we have gentrification going into interesting neighborhoods and displacing people. And, you know, for Byron Brown, he came in 16 years ago this city. We had no money to work with. We couldn't fund schools. We couldn't fund anything. And now suddenly we've got this really thriving tax base. Um, our property, you know, values in a lot of ways are – a lot of places are higher than the suburbs. So, you know, I understand that the Brown administration did all this work so we'd have a tax base. But now that we got that tax base, we're not really addressing the most important issues, which is social disparity. Right. And and poverty and everything that goes with that. So there's a lot of people, you know, um, yeah. teachers union, nurses union all came in strong behind, behind India. And we we got our fingers crossed and, uh, you know, we, we want to see her pull it off.
1: Okay. Well, we'll have to leave it there. But, uh, Michael Nyman, uh, Professor of Journalism and Media Studies at Buffalo State University. Thank you so much for joining us this evening and, and giving us a report on really this historic moment in the history of uh, Buffalo and Western New York.
0: It's a pleasure to be the BAA, John. So you bet. Uh, take care.
1: Okay, you too. Okay, Yep. bye. Bye. All right, uh, when we come back over this, after this short break, we will talk about what's been happening in Virginia. And uh, we'll also be talking about yeah, really, the larger national moment uh, that's reflected in these uh, in these primary elections. We'll be talking with Linda Martin Alcoff, author of The Future of Whiteness, and we'll also hear from Alex Hahn, uh, executive director of Organizing Upgrade. Uh, so, anyway, we will be back after this short break. <laughs> That was Bloody Sunday by you 2 I'm John Tarleton, a host of the, of the Independence Election Night special here on WBAI 99.5 FM. In our final 15 minutes before we have to go, we're going to uh, continue to look at the bigger picture outside of New York uh, nationally. Uh, the biggest race of the day is in Virginia where uh, Republican uh, Glenn Yonkin, former CEO of the Carlisle Group, uh, is leading uh, Democrat Terry McAuliffe, a uh, longtime uh, uh, figure in Clinton world, is anyway. McAuliffe is down uh, ten points, fifty-four or fifty-five to forty-five, with sixty-one percent of the vote counted. Uh, the race has not been called yet. Uh, we don't know exactly where the remaining forty uh, percent or so of the vote uh, still needs to come from in Virginia. Yonkin uh, doing extremely well in rural areas and. Uh, so far, has been making up ground in some of the suburbs of Virginia, where uh, Joe Biden uh, did very well last year against Donald Trump. And uh, to talk about what's happening in Virginia and this uh, sort of the larger phenomena of the Republicans uh, really trying to mobilize around uh, white, basically white grievance to mobilize their way back into power. Uh, and our next guest, who's going to help us uh, dissect that, is Linda Alkoff. Uh, and also we're going to be joined by Alex Hahn uh, executive director of organizing upgrade a, uh, a essentially a, a think tank for for left strategy and organizing here in the United States that does uh, really great work in uh, in interpreting the, the moments we're in and how uh, the left can effectively organize uh, Linda and Alex welcome to WBAi
13: thanks John good to be here
3: yeah thanks John uh, great to great to be on
1: Great, thanks to both of you for joining us. So, so Linda, that um, we, we, you know, we've seen this uh, tremendous uh, uh, appeal to um, uh, rate, racially anxious white voters in Virginia, uh, a number of whom voted for Joe Biden over uh, Donald Trump last year. And at least so far, uh, the Republican uh, gov- governor candidate uh, Glenn Yonkin, is up by ten points, roughly. Uh, I want to talk about this a little bit more. Uh, we have, a, I think, a couple of clips we can play. Uh, one is an ad that uh, the Republicans ran in the past month uh, uh, trying to play on fears of a, uh, a famous novel by uh, Toni Morrison called Beloved, uh, which uh, draws on the experiences of slavery. A- a- and then also I think we have another clip. Uh, of uh, a Virginia voter being interviewed about uh, their thoughts on critical race theory, which has sort of become this uh, catch-all for all sorts of, uh, um, uh, boogeymen. The Republicans have uh, tried to stir up this cycle. Uh, let's see if we have these clips ready to go. I'm sorry, John, I
0: do not have any clips.
1: Okay. All right. Um, well, we'll, we'll just uh, keep on moving along. So, um, Anyway, the Republicans have uh, have really uh, tried to stoke fears of critical race theory and, and then have gone on to try to stoke fears of a novel uh, uh, by a, a Nobel uh, Prize-winning uh, novelist, Tony Morrison. Uh, Linda, can you talk a little bit – I mean you wrote a book called The Future of Whiteness. You're certainly familiar with crit- critical race theory uh, from your years in academia. You're a professor of philosophy at the City University of New York. Can you talk uh, d- briefly about what critical race theory really is and, and, and how it's uh, sort of been uh, hijacked and, and, and turned into this uh, caricature?
13: Yeah, John, um, I think, you know, I'm I'm glad you had me on because I was watching MSNBC earlier talk about critical race theory and it, I was about to tear all my hair out. I think I have a little. Oh, don't hair
1: do out. that. <laughs>
13: but, but, you know, they're, they, they said, this is what they said. They said it's critical race theory. Theory is not being taught in Virginia schools. This is the liberals talking. Okay, it's like talking about unicorns, and that's just not true. I mean, the fact is, critical race theory is being taught in Virginia schools, certainly in every college, and also in high school. So I think that you know people want to try to uh, say that this is, a, you know, the Republicans are putting some some uh, you know sandstorm up um, some to to fight a culture war and distract us from the real issues of COVID and the economy. But I I really think that's a mistake. I think that we need to take this challenge on because, you know, there's a way in which the voters know what critical race theory is, which is about the need to talk about race and racism, the need to talk about the history of racism in the United States and how that is ongoing has ongoing effects today. That's basically what it is. I think if we define it in this narrow technical way, mm-hmm. as you know, you know, a very small sub sub in legal studies, you know, it's it's not really true. I mean, critical race theory emerged after winning the civil rights um, uh, legislative struggles against a jury segregation and Jim Crow. And after all of those things were won, you know, everything got worse. Poverty got worse. Uh, Racialized incarceration got worse. Um, Terrible housing, you know, continued. Uh, Voting rights has been eroded. So the point of it was to begin to think a little bit more deeply about how racism continues to structure our society. And that is being taught. And that's why they're trying to teach teach Beloved in the schools because Beloved, um, and and what's so ironic about teaching Beloved really is that it's a, it's a brilliant novel that is talking about the difficulty of talking about the past, the trauma of the past, even for those who had been enslaved. I mean, the characters in Beloved are African-Americans who experienced slavery And they have trouble looking back, right? It is not easy to do. But what the book does is it shows that you have to. Everybody has to. Um, And it's difficult. And it raises all kinds of moral questions. How do you judge the choices that we make under terribly oppressive conditions? Can we even judge the moral choices that, that we made under terribly oppressive conditions. I mean, the book is brilliant because it raises all these questions. It shows how hard and difficult it is, and it can help students, you know, have a way to begin to think about these questions you know, in a, in a productive way and maybe talk to each other. So I just think we need to stop, um, avoiding the topic. This is what the Dems always do. So the voters have a choice between they either get a racist message or they get a race avoidance message, you know, from the liberals and the Democrats who say, no, 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 this has nothing to do with race. We should be talking about the other serious issues. Whereas in actuality, you know, all these issues do have something to do with race, and we're not providing an alternative way to talk about race. We're just trying to avoid the topic or, or, or sweep it under the rug.
1: Do you think it's, it, it's something that white voters want to grapple with?
13: Well, many do. Um, You know, we have to think both short-term and long-term when we do electoral work. And there's, you know, loads of of people who are doing focus groups and, and looking at how you get white voters to vote for people of color candidates. How do you get white voters to vote for bond issues that will bring resources to public schools in cities and urban areas? And they have found ways to do it. Um, A lot of the main experts counsel race avoidance, downplay your identity if you're not white, downplay uh, where the funds are actually going. And this short-term strategy has shown to be effective, but we also have to think about a long-term strategy. So we we need short-term strategies that will not make the long-term worse, And clearly, um, there is uh, broader white support, especially among younger people, for recognizing the truth about the racist history in the United States. And I think we have to find some strategies. Ian Haney Lopez's book, March Left, I recommend people read that. It is, but he's he's a critical race theorist. Or, you know, uh, he's a great one. And he's been writing on this for years, and he wrote this book, Merge Left, which is about how to talk to voters with a race class narrative. So there there are mechanisms to do this, and we need to further develop them. We, we, we have to stop thinking about the electorate as fixed and unchanging. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And speaking of, of finding ways to talk about Uh, narratives of of race and class simultaneously. Uh, This is something that uh, organizing upgrade uh, puts a lot of energy into. Uh, Alex Hahn, your thoughts tonight? I mean, right now um, in Virginia, uh, Glenn Yonkin's still up about 10 points with almost two-thirds of the votes in. Um, This is somebody who was a a, a private equity CEO at the Carlisle Group, Uh, probably never really cared that much uh, uh, whether – what uh, literature was being taught in uh, Virginia public schools, but uh, is now trying to ride this uh, all the way into the governor's seat. Um, can you, can you talk about what what you see happening in Virginia and also uh, copycat um, attempts we're going to likely see elsewhere in the coming years uh, from Republicans uh, already building off of uh, sort of the um, strategies of Donald Trump?
3: Yeah. I, you know, I would say it's important to take a step back and think of the whole picture of what is happening today, um, and I think you know the, these results in Virginia are uh, certainly um, at best too close for comfort, um, and, and at worst you know uh, symbolic of something. You can kind of, depending on the perspective you bring, um, you can put a lot of different lenses on that. I do think it's important to understand that we really have been in a five decade backlash, um, you know, to uh, whether you want to think about the New Deal. Um, kind of the great society, the civil rights movement um we've been in a five decade backlash to the sixties, um, and I think over the last couple of years we've really accomplished a lot, including beating back a potential second term of donald trump um, we've created a lot of alignment um, in a coalition uh left progressive alignment is one of the ways we like to talk about it as organizing up at organizing upgrade um and so i you know I think that there are. Um, reasons to be uh hopeful about the future around politics. I think this, you know, this election, we've already seen it spun uh one million different ways, the results of, of uh of the Virginia election. I mean, I think you you raised a really salient point um in you know Glenn Youngkin's uh 25 year career at the Carlisle group in private equity, um in vulture investment capital, um, you know, something that in my memory Uh, In 2012, we had a campaign across the country uh, where Barack Obama um, hung that around, um, you know, the Republican candidate um, and kind of made them answer for that in a very clear way. Um, And so, you know, I'm I'm no, I've never, I've never polled, um, you know, the popularity of Toni Morrison among the electorate, um, but I've certainly seen a lot of polls of Wall Street um, and private equity among the electorate, um, and they are not uh, popular. And so, you know, I, I think that there are, you know, ways to read um, far more into the results of what comes out of Virginia um, than is really, uh, uh, you know, reflective of what's happening on the ground. I think we've seen a dynamic and a tide shift. We see another former investment banker in New Jersey, uh, in Governor Phil Murphy, um, who really turned into one of the most progressive governors I think we've had. Um, anywhere um, over the last several decades in the United States. Um, and it looks like he's in a relatively comfortable position um, for re-election. And so I think that there are ways to think about, you know, there there is, you you can't talk about class without talking about race, and you can't talk about race without talking about class. And I think any attempt to do so um, is seen, you know, by voter, like that's seen through by voters. They might not have a clear idea. Um, of exactly how they view things. Um, but I think voters, you know, have an ability to detect uh, uh, when they're being played um, in that way. And so I think that, right. you know, there there are some lessons to learn here um, for next year, but there's not an enormous amount of, you know, there, there's, there are dangers out there um, that are much greater uh, than uh, Glenn Youngkin um, winning the governorship of Virginia. And so I think if we keep our eyes on the prize, um, and we really think about how to build a front uh, big enough to beat back um, these kind of culture war attempts, um, you know, then then that's going to be critical over these next couple. of years.
1: Right. We only have another uh, minute or two here. Uh, but real, real quickly, y- your thoughts of the impact of the, of the Democrats really being unable in Congress to to move uh, most of the Biden agenda with all these uh, potential um, expansions of government support for working and middle class people? Um, What is the impact when, when, you know, people come out and vote uh, for the Democrats and then they don't deliver on most of their commitments? You
3: know, I, I think there's always going to be an impact, but nobody was going to feel the impact, frankly, of the infrastructure bill or the Build Back Better Act immediately. After its passage, and so I, I you know, that I think the issue is again a step back issue. The corporate capture of the Democratic Party is an issue. Uh, the inability, um, the the kind of uh, the kind of attempts to of the right wing of the Democratic Party um, to push back the growing energy that is in the left and progressive side of the Democratic Party are the bigger questions. I think bigger than the passage of one bill or another. Would it have helped? In this election, to have been able to talk about passing this bill, I'm sure it would have helped. Um, but I think there, you know, in, in these questions, right. you know, there are no, there are no.